pray before we start. Jesus, you are Lord. You hold us all in your hand. You know us. You love us. You have a plan for us. You've given us all that we need to live. You see what we do each day. You you hear what we say. You know what we think. And you love us anyways. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this scripture that we're going to look at today. I pray that everyone would see you in this and, and understand who you are better and, and how much you love us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to continue Dennis's um, study on the letter to the seven churches in Revelation. And this week we're talking about Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia, if you look at the map there, is this big loop that we're kind of traveling around. Um, Philadelphia, everybody knows, it means the city of brotherly love. That's the meaning of the words. Phila and Delphia, you know, Phila, brother. Philadelphia was named after um, one of two brothers. There was the king of Pergamum, whose name was, began with an E, and he had a brother whose name began with an A, Atalus. One of them, the older brother, um, was supposedly killed. Either he was assassinated, and um, the younger brother rose up and took his position, thinking he was dead. But it turns out he wasn't dead, and he came back, and there was no argument, there was no fight. The younger brother just gave way to his brother, saying, you're the, you're the ruler, I'm stepping out, you know. And then later on, um, when enemies of the ruler came to the younger brother and asked, them, asked him to betray the, his brother, you know, we'll raise you up and you can be the, the ruler. He continually refused. So one of them built this city, Philadelphia, on a community that had been there for a while. But um, they, made, they named it Philadelphia after the brotherly love that one showed for the other. Now, Philadelphia was located on two main roads. One was a, a commerce road where a lot of people would travel with merchandise to sell, buy, to travel. And there was another road, a military road, that allowed the... Uh, first, it was the Greek Empire to, to bring their troops in and to um, maintain safety in the area. Eventually, it became a Roman-controlled um, area. But because it was located near these two main roads, it was, it was called the gateway to the east. The areas of Mycia and Lydia and Phrygia were farther out to the east and north. And the, the Greek um, emperor wanted to reach those people, not to with the gospel or anything like that, but just to acclimate them into the, the Greek society so they could have their, their loyalty and their money, of course, so that it was kind of a 
missionary city in that way when it first was formed. Um, the area surrounding it and where it was belonging was a big plain of volcanic soil. And volcanic soil is especially suited to growing vines, any plants with vines. And first thing that comes to mind would be grapevines. And it was a very big wine-producing um, city with the, the farmland all around. And it was prosperous because it had that agricultural um, ability and because of the, uh, the commerce that came in from all around. Um, the fact that the Greeks thought of it as a missionary city actually proved true because within a, a few hundred years, everybody in that area ended up speaking Greek. So it, it actually served their purpose um, one thing that was troubling to that area, it was prone to earthquakes. Um, if there's volcanoes there, I guess things are unstable. Um, but it was very prone to earthquakes. And in A.D. 17, the great earthquake of A.D. 17 came. Not only, we may have heard earlier, that it leveled Sardis, it also leveled Philadelphia. It was unlivable. Everybody had to move out of the city. They stayed out in the farm areas, building whatever they could live in. Um, but every time they went back to the city to start building again, and building with the idea that a I mean, an earthquake can come again, the aftershocks would still recur, and everything they started building would be dangerous and they don't have to leave again. They're always trying to get back in, but they get sent back out again. But the emperor, the Roman emperor, understood what happened and he developed this gigantic economic recovery package. Have you ever heard of those? So he sent a lot of money. He sent a real lot of money into that area um, to build up the commerce to, to help people, and he released them from paying taxes for five years. So they, that was wonderful. They were very appreciative, and in gratitude, they changed the name of the city from Philadelphia to Neo Caesarea, which is New Caesar's place, I guess. It was, it was a way to give honor to Caesar, telling him, well, We're so thankful that you did this. Um, and in other times, they change it again. Uh, when another ruler did things that they liked, they changed the name to Flavia in honor of the imperial dynasty of that name. But that goodwill didn't really last. Um, famines came, earthquakes still came, and one of the Roman emperors issued an edict saying, yeah, you make a lot of grapes and wine, but there's a famine going on, so you have to destroy half of the, the vines that you're growing here and plant corn. And unfortunately, that soil is not good for growing corn, but that's what he ordered, and that's what happened, and that crushed um, that city. Their loyalty to the Roman emperor and the, that dynasty was seriously damaged. 
they felt betrayed. Um, its patron saint was Dionysus, the god of wine, because of all the wine they had. Whether that means they actually worshipped him or anything, or if it was just a like a good luck charm, since he wasn't a god anyways, that's what it was. And at the time of the writing of this letter in Revelation, there was a synagogue in Philadelphia and obviously a very small church. And based on the text that we're going to look at, there must have been many Christian Jews in the church, and we'll find out as we go along. So why don't we read the scripture that we have and go from there. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is coming, going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will, I, will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that's the NIV version. There's something about the, the King James version that I like. Um, and I, you may have noticed that I made the word behold and Old, that that word is, is something that um, to me is important. It's it's God saying, "Behold," not just see. It's behold, pay attention. This is important. I'm about to do something. Wake up! Here it goes. This is what's happening. Behold, and that's what he did. Four times he tells them to behold. That was just a little point that I, I'm going to touch on later. So we start at the beginning. These are the words of him who is holy and true. Holy, meaning set apart, exalted, worthy of complete devotion, higher, loftier, pure. This is Jesus, the one who is holy and true. So he's being true. He's saying he's holy. And since he's holy... He is set apart. He is true. He is in accordance. True is in accordance with fact or reality, accurate or exact. We know that Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father, who is invisible, being spirit. Jesus is holy and true. These are important words that this church needed to hear. 
They were surrounded by the pagan culture, but also a Jewish synagogue who didn't like them very much. They didn't like the message that they were hearing from this church, that now the church was God's chosen people, and they weren't anymore. And they, they, they were very antagonistic against them. Some of the people in the, the local church obviously were Jews because they had been in that synagogue using it as a support system. That's what a synagogue was. It's, it was the dispersed people of the Jews in a community supporting each other. But when they found out that they had, they had Christ and they didn't believe the law, they didn't trust in the law, um, they were excommunicated, saying, you are not the chosen people, we are still the chosen people. So Jesus was saying, I am the Holy One, I am true. Giving them the comfort they needed to keep trusting says, he holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. If we go to Isaiah 22, Isaiah was given these words from God to say to um, Shebna. Shebna was the palace administrator, and he, his head got really big. He thought he was big-time guy, and God wanted to put him in his place. So he sent Isaiah saying, I'm going to raise up Eliakim. Now, Eliakim was a faithful man of God, a faithful Jew. He was going to replace Shebna as the palace administrator. He was the one who had the keys to the house of David, meaning nobody could enter into the palace unless Shebna said, okay, you know, I got the key. You don't just walk right in. You have to ask. You need permission. And no one can get out. Nobody can open it. Nobody can shut it. That was the job of the house administrator. And Shebna took it too seriously. His head got enormous, and he got replaced. So we see that. And then later on, we see keys again given Jesus says to Peter, when Peter was asked, who do you say I am? And he gave the great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on to say, you are Peter, meaning rock. But on this rock, meaning you are the Christ, the son of God, the statement, the belief that Jesus is the Christ, he is the son of God, the one who can save God, Jesus is going to build his church. And then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. With that same faith and proclamation that Peter had, we became members of God's family. We, now we have the keys to the God's palace, to, to the palace of David. We have... The keys. It doesn't mean we decide who comes in and who goes out, but we have the ability to open the doors. We have the privilege of telling people, making open wide, letting them, drawing them in. 
So that was an incredibly powerful thing that, that these Christians in this church wanted to hear, that they, they were the family of God. They had the power to witness, to... It was, it was just totally different from what they were hearing from the, the Jewish synagogue and the uh, pagan culture around them. So he goes, I know your deeds. Behold, that's what C means. Behold, I know your deeds. This is where Jesus would have something good to say about the other churches. But here he goes, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. First he goes, I know your deeds. I know you. I know everything about you. I know your heart. I know your fears. I know your frustration, your anger at being treated the way you are. I know your faith. I know the struggles you're in. He knows everything about us. He says it in different ways to the other churches. He'll say, I know your deeds, or I know your afflictions and poverty, or I know where you live. And he's saying that to us today. I know you. I know everything about you. And I have you. Jesus, God the Son, knows his churches. He knows when we're faithful. He knows when we are less than faithful. And the the word behold, enforcement, it's an emphasis. He's saying, look here, I'm making a promise. I have placed you before an open door, before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, what does an open door mean? There's a few different things that it could possibly mean, and some of them may overlap. It's possible, as some Bible scholars believe, that not only did the Greeks use this city as a gateway to the community further out east and north, but that Jesus is opening an opportunity for evangelism, for reaching out to to, uh, the unsaved, um, to just an opportunity to share the gospel. And that very well may be. It seems to be a strong possibility but there's also phrasing, the phrasing of, I'm, I have opened a door for you. And when Jesus said, I have the key to David, to David's house, it also talks about um, a surety that he's telling this church that I've opened the door and nothing's going to change that. Um, let me go back to that word. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. He's, it may be also just encouragement that the door is open wide. I have opened it for you. You are in my family, my household. Stay here. Um, another, other people, which I don't look at this as an open door to martyrdom. I mean, Revelation is very filled with with death of the faithful dying. 
Uh, I don't know if that's what this means. It seems like a stretch. Some people think it means I've opened a door for prayer, but prayer was possible before. So some people just think it's an open door saying the synagogue that you used to live in has thrown you out and shut you out. They shut the door and they won't let you back in. But I've opened this door and you are welcome as my people. It may just be a contradiction of what the Jewish synagogue did to them. You can make up your mind of how many you want to combine together on those, um, and I'll make up my own mind. Then he goes on. The talk about, sorry, I skipped over that. Talking about the evangelism as the possibility. Um, we go to Paul in Corinthians. He says it a couple times using the word an open door to refer to evangelism. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. And then later, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, da 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 So it's definitely been used for evangelism, for um, preaching the gospel. So it's top of the list, as far as I think, the reason it's been used. Now, this is, this is the part where Jesus would go to the other churches and say, that's all well and good, but this I hold against you. Jesus would say, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Little strength means not spiritual strength. He's talking about physical strength, financial strength, prestige, um, social standing, worldly influence. In other words, they're a bunch of losers. In the world's eyes, they were losers. They were, they were really nothing. But Jesus said, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. They were simple believers who held to their faith and their Lord. So there's no word of correction from Jesus for this church. Although they had no great successes, they had no um, earth-shaking movement of power. They had no, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Revival. They just stayed true and faithful, and Jesus commended them and did not hold anything against them. And here we go again. Behold, in the King James Version, behold, pay attention. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So these people in the synagogue, they were Jewish, but in Jesus' eyes, they were not true Jews because they did not accept God's Messiah. The one he sent, the promised one, he sent his son, and they rejected him. So in Jesus' eyes, they are false Jews now. They, they are not his people. 
And he knows what they've been dealing with. He knows what this church has taken from the, the synagogue. And he's giving them vindication. Vindication is a a big thing in the book of Revelation. Um, Vindication in the the book of Revelation is, basically, it's a way to prove us as being true. Not that we are true, but we are the true people of God. And there's an example of that meaning in Isaiah. This is the tables returned. The Gentiles had been um, attacking the, the Israelites, and Isaiah says this, The children of your oppressors will come bowing down before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. They were being mistreated, But God says, I'm going to vindicate you. I'm going to prove to the world that you are my chosen people. And unfortunately for them, they did not accept the Messiah when he came. And now the table is turned. Jesus is saying, I'm going to make those who rejected me come and fall down in front of you because they will acknowledge that you that I love you not and not them. Jesus who knows his churches, those who are his and not he is not callous to the suffering that his church has. He's not detached, he's not unaware. He 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 feels the pain, he knows exactly what it's what it feels like. That's what he's saying to this church. I know, you're, I know who you are. I'm going to prove you true to this synagogue. And he will faithfully prove us as genuine, genuine children of God if we, like this church, are faithful to him. So in Revelation, some examples of the vindication that, that we can see. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And again, for they they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And we know that the vindication that maybe we're seeking, maybe this church was seeking it, Um, we're reminded in Romans that it's God's place to take revenge. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. It could be very tempting to to strike back at somebody who's, who's hurting you, who's saying things about you. It's very tempting for the flesh to rise up and and just hit back to be just like the one who's hurting you. 
But that's not the calling that we have. That's not the way Jesus wants us to respond. He continues with this in this letter. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. This is not a local trial that this little town is going through, the city, this church. It's coming on the whole world, so it, it's understood that it references the Great Tribulation. But if you look at... I, Dennis gave me a bunch of his books that are filled with a lot of stuff that smarter people than I understand. Um, if you define the word from, it's ek, E-K. It has several meanings. One of them is from. That's positionally, when you're talking about a place. From. I'm, I'm from Cheshire. That means I was there and now I came here or wherever. You've been moved. Another is talking about in or during. From my birth, I've always kept these, the man said to Jesus. From my youth. He wasn't out of his youth. He was in his youth. From his youth, I've been keeping these commandments. And then there's other meanings to from. My point of this is I don't want to have a debate about this, but the idea of a rapture is 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 a concept that has been brought out in the relatively near present, 1950s. Uh, so um, just looking at what's What's in Revelation? What, what the scriptures say? Um, I have to look at the, the verses that the Bible points me to that, that tie in with this. And this is Jesus' prayer for his believers. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. And then I'll, one more verse that I want to read. Maybe I didn't put it in there. It's Revelation 13, 9 through 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Thank you. <laughs> Scripture is clear that suffering for Christ is an honor and a privilege, and it's going to happen in the future. 
Paul says it. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. I think some of these themes may be why some of the people say that the open door that Jesus opened was to martyrdom. Maybe, maybe it is. I don't know. But those people weren't alive. I mean, aren't alive still, so they're not in the Great Tribulation. Anyways, and also in Acts, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They were flogged, meaning they were whipped with that piece of bone that ripped their flesh off. And they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. I don't know what you believe about the end times, the Great Tribulation. I don't know why we, who have it so easy, would be taken out of that. So I'm, I'm just opening it up to, to your own uh, read on that. The, the rapture is something that is questionable in my mind. I'm not telling you what to believe. I am coming soon, Jesus promised again. Behold, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have. They already had proved that they were holding on. You have held on to my word. You have not denied my name. Again, I am coming soon. Hang in there. You're doing it. You're doing it. Keep doing it so that no one will take your crown. This is, this is a description of a sporting event. Um, like the Olympics, there were sporting events in that that community that in the map there being a, a, a plane there's a lot of room for um, Olympic type games so this was very familiar to to that local church that Jesus is sending this letter to so that no one will take your crown Here's what Paul wrote about a crown and a sporting event. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to, as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. They're competing one against another, that's not our race. We don't compete against each other. We compete against what God has asked us to do. God said to this church, I know your deeds. You're doing the things I asked you to do. Keep doing it. You have not denied my name. You've held out under persecution. Keep doing those. So the race we're running is the same race they ran. We need to be doing what Jesus has asked us to do, and we need to keep holding on to his name, not denying it no matter what comes our way. 
I think this is a warning that persecution is going to come and we have to be able to hold on through that. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Now this has to be a striking visual to this little church because their their whole city was destroyed and totally leveled, except from what I read that there were temples in that city and the only thing left standing were these massive pillars that were just so big and immovable, immovable, immovable that they were the only things left standing in the city. That may be an exaggeration, but it ties in with what Jesus is doing and So this is a picture of another town near that area, but it it shows you what it might have looked like after the earthquake. And those would have been a visual that he could uh, use because he's the greatest picture storyteller ever. I mean, every parable, he would take something intimately that everybody knew, just fishing. Everybody in that area knew fishing or he'd take bread or yeast, and he'd, he'd tell the story, and he'd tell a great truth with it. And so he's, he's the master of that, and he would just take the pillar that they saw left standing in the city and, and use that as a promise that you, if you overcome, you are going to be like that pillar standing tall in the temple of my God. And since there is no temple in the New Jerusalem because God and the Lamb are the temple, He's talking about this is, this is a place of honor. This is a place of, of sureness, of immovability. You're going to be there forever. And you're not going to be going out. You're not going to have to run out of the town, of the, out of the city, because things are falling down. You're going to be on solid footing. You're going to be there. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're going to be there permanently. These are words of encouragement, a picture that Jesus is drawing of, of their their ultimate um, place of, of safety. He goes on. I will write on them the name of my God, the name of, my, of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. There's threefold names being put on these people. And us, if we overcome. First, the name of my God. To belong to him. We've been marked, we've been labeled, we've been claimed to belong to him as his child. Then the name of his city. This is something that these people wanted to to hear. That God claims me. God is going to put the name of, of his city on me. It's just going to be a city that lasts. It's, it's, it's going to be wonderful. This is a promise that Jesus is giving them. And then he goes and says, I will also write on them my new name, which is a name that no one knows yet. It hasn't been exposed, told yet. It will be when the end time comes and Jesus sits down as judge and and Lord and and rules. Now, 
the fact that Jesus is having his name, a new name, and he's bestowing names of his father and of the city on these people, they were very familiar with name changing because, like I told you earlier, that if one emperor did something great, they'd, hey, let's change the name of our city to this guy's name. Good idea. But so they saw, they saw what that kind of thing did. It, it didn't really mean much. But he's saying, I will write on them the name of my God, the name of his city, and my new name. It's going to be something that represents us, and we are the holy and the true. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's in every letter, which goes and tells us that every letter that was written, every church is supposed to be hearing. If you have ears, you're supposed to be hearing this. We're supposed to be looking at that letter, and we're supposed to be comparing that letter to, to where we are. Where are we this is one of the, you know, the, the two churches that Jesus does not have some fault to find with. Um, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Looking at this small church, I can see some similarities between Oasis and them. I mean, we're a pretty small church. We don't have a lot of prestige. We don't have a lot of influence in the physical we don't have a lot of money. We're not causing a great revival anywhere. We're not getting a whole lot of views online. <laughs> and I don't think Jesus cares about that. Are we doing what he asks us to do? Are we doing his word, his word following his word? Are we holding true to him? Are we not... Um, Are we being faithful to his name? Are we continually keeping him as Lord, not denying him? The, uh, the author of one of the books that Dennis let me look at um, wrapped up this part of the book um, saying his name is Grant R. Osborne, Bible commentator, scholar, he said, it seems God is more interested in faithfulness than success. And I believe that's true because success is not our domain. We don't cause success. We just obey, and God causes the success. So I feel that it could be an encouragement to us as a church that God knows our faithfulness, and our unfaithfulness at times. God knows our love for each other and for him, and sometimes our love is not what it should be. God knows us, and he encourages us, just like he did this church, hold on, hold on, keep doing what you're doing, continue on. Maybe he's opening a door for us as we take these words to heart. Um, I guess that's really all I have to say. I just want to close in prayer and give you a blessing. Lord Jesus, you are so amazing. You are God the Son. 
hold all authority. You rule completely. You say who can enter the king's palace, and you say who cannot. You are the judge. Lord, you love your people. You know your people. You sent them these letters to to help guide them, help correct them, help to encourage them. Father, help us all to take these things to heart, to, to hold on. Lord, I believe that a time of persecution will be coming, whether in our lifetime or not, but it's going to be coming. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful, that you would give us the strength to hold on, to be faithful to your name. Father God, thank you for this time. Bless each one as they leave here today. Keep them safe. Encourage them. Just help them feel your presence and, uh, and your support, your love. Help us to be the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good week. Thank you.